Welcome to Sweet Bitter, where we explore the untold history of women and queer pirates. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida and Lisa Charlotte. This episode is going to be our first of two episodes on queer pirates. But first, we're joined by resident pirate expert Elise to play our new favorite game, Fact or Fiction. Hi, Elise. Hi, y'all. I'm nervous. I always get nervous I'm going to get these wrong. <laughs> like our whole thing is supposed to be like, we know things. And then I'm like, oh, God damn it, Elise, you got me. <laughs> Let's see. I'm ready, though. I'm ready. Here we go. Okay. The skull and crossbones flag. Was it real or not real? I feel like I also interviewed Jamie Goodall for this, so I'm taking myself out of the race. Ellie, it's on you. Oh, my gosh. It's always on me. Okay. So... I do remember that we talked about pirates having a different type of flag. A cooler um, flag, I believe. A cooler flag. But I'm going to say this, that this is also fact and that they had multiple types of flags. And one of those flags was a skull and crossbones because they would have been trying to intimidate the people that they were jumping on board for and so it would definitely be something scary so i'm gonna say it's it's fact yes you're right it uh yes <laughs> it was a real flag the skull and crossbones as a symbol of death actually goes back to like the late middle ages it would have been used on tombstones some pirates had the the classic skull and crossbones on their flag during the early 18th century, and others had even scarier flags, like a full skeleton, like with an hourglass in one hand to symbolize that you only had so much time to surrender before the pirates would attack you. And in the other hand, he had like a, a bloody heart being stabbed with a spear. So that, I think, is an even scarier flag, which which some pirates had. I love it. That's I'm glad I got it right. I get so nervous. but <laughs> <laughs> It's okay um, to be wrong, Ellie. No, it's not. <laughs> they called the flag the Jolly Roger. This might have come from Jolly Rouge, uh, which is French for pretty red, beautiful red. And so that might have been like a way to symbolize violent pirates. But also there's a thought that Roger was like a slang name for a penis. So it could have been like <laughs> a homoerotic sex pun. I mean, we're here for that, especially that. as we talk about <laughs> queer pirates. Yep, yep, yep. Very on point for this episode. That's kind of why I picked this factor fiction for today's episode, because today's episode is going to be about queer pirates. Our favorite topic. Thank you, Elise. We love doing our fact and fiction with you. We'll be back after a short ad break. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this episode, we're going to be talking specifically about queer pirates. You'll remember last week when we spoke to Jamie Goodall, who works for the U.S. Army Center of Military History. Just a quick reminder that her views on this are her own and not that of the U.S. government. It probably wasn't as obvious to people, so it, it would be hard to, to give a number or like a percentage. But I would say that there was probably a decent amount of homosexuality among pirates, not any more than the traditional population, right? I feel like they're just representative of the regular population. And we know that homosexual relationships existed in the 17th and 18th centuries, even though they were closeted and hidden. It's not like pirates are more queer than the general population. It's just difficult to say without the evidence to support it, but for sure it existed. And then as far as queer pirates, there are two books that I want to mention that deal with queer piracy. Hans Turley's Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, Piracy, Sexuality, and Masculine Identity. 
And then there's B.R. Berg's Sodomy and the Pirate Tradition, English Sea Rovers in the 17th Century Caribbean. And both of them sort of talk about the fact that homosexual acts were against the law, of course, at that time period. Theories exist that there were queer relationships among pirates, particularly because they had a system known as matelotage, which was a same-sex union among sailors, in particular pirates, where it was sort of an economic relationship. They would inherit their partner's property if their partner died. In addition, they pledged to protect and fight for each other. And so some have interpreted that as a platonic, purely economic relationship. Others have viewed that matelotage as what we would consider a same-sex civil union or a same-sex marriage. So we don't have a lot of evidence as far as queer piracy goes, but what we do have is very interesting. Okay, so what we're saying is same-sex marriage was legal so very, very, very long ago on pirate ships. The pirates are way, way, way ahead of their time. Yeah, disgraceful. Also, I'm like... Are we going to pretend like marriage isn't an economic, of purely economic is. now too? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is still, okay, this is my partner. Let me make sure I'm married to them so that when I die, they're taken care of, right? It's not that crazy of an idea. I mean, I gay couples used to adopt each other so that they would have that same guarantee. So yeah. it is, it's all just about like the economics of it. But it's like, you know, you care about that person and you want them to be taken care of. Of course. So did they care about them in a gay way or just a friend way? Honestly, probably both. Both and either, you know? But I love that. Okay, but how did we find these historical records if they were so clandestine? Here's pirate expert Rebecca Simon to answer that question. It's because none of it was ever officially recorded. And it wouldn't have been during that time period because it just wasn't really talked about. I don't know if it was, I know um, there were laws against sodomy and, you know, these are terms that were being used back then. So keep in mind, terminology I'm using was terminology from the 18th century. So sodomy was considered to be a criminal offense, sometimes even an executionable offense. There were very strict laws often against, you know, sex and relationships on ships. And this could be because of complications. Does this mean homosexuality did not exist? No. Homosexuality has existed everywhere in every animal kingdom, in every life form since the beginning of time. You know, so in my opinion, it's impossible to say there wasn't homosexuality on a ship. We just can't prove who. There's assumptions based on certain pieces of evidence that maybe some pirates might have engaged in some form of relationships. There are records, a few of pirates engaging in something called matelotage. And what this is, it's kind of sort of entering into not a marriage contract, but it's a contract where you're essentially kind of choosing someone who you're close to, leaving a will essentially to leave all your goods to uh, in case you die in battle. We don't know the relationships of people who had these contracts. There are some who very much assume that it was because of same-sex love relationships. There are others who believe it was just kind of like an insurance thing, close friends, supporting each other, or giving someone their goods so it could later be transferred to families without being lost. So again, very complicated. There are some records, particularly two pirates, Robert Colliford and John Swan, who both kind of sailed together in the 1690s with Captain Kidd off and on. And they both settled in Madagascar on the island, island of St. Mary, I believe, near Madagascar. 
And the records say, and this is in the calendar state papers, so very legitimate source, that they lived together or they lived next to each other. This could mean a few things. That it could be that there were two known pirates who just happened to be living together on the same island. It could be that perhaps they were neighbors. It could be perhaps they were actually living together in the same home. So it really kind of depends on the interpretation. And this is what makes the subject such a piece of interest because we don't know. There's no proof yes, but there's no proof no either. There are a lot of people who are very hardcore, like, no, homosexuality does not exist. And then others saying it was everywhere. I fall in the hole. Absolutely. There had to have been gay pirates just because statistically there would be. And sometimes there is what they call situational homosexuality, where when you're isolated together for a very long time, you develop these close relationships and sometimes they turn sexual if, you know, they don't have sexual release in any other way for a very long period of time. So, you know, that could be very common as well. And there are places where that does happen, whether or not it's consensual is a whole other topic of discussion. But again, we just don't have records. But in my opinion, just based on what humanity is, sure, there were gay pirates. We just don't know who and we don't know how many. So we're saying all of the relationships on Orange is the New Black are situational homosexuality (laughs) as well? Look at this situation I'm in. I guess I'd better be homosexual. (laughs) I'm with this other hot woman. What will I do? (laughs) I mean, that makes a lot of sense though, right? Like these pirates are isolated together. And I think we've talked to a lot of historians who have talked about, even if there weren't records of this, like if you think about a situation where two people are together and they're the only people around, like they're either going to be celibate or they're going to be <laughs> together. Or, I mean, they don't have to be celibate. They can, you know, people can take care of themselves <laughs> as well. There's only a few options here, really. Absolutely. So this is a similar, a similar take as B.R. Berg all these R names, so hard to say as an Australian, position on this, which is basically, duh, of course it would have happened. (laughs) And that's also the attitude of Clint Jones, the historian from episode one, who reads pirate societies as blueprints for social utopias. It seems to me inevitable that when you are living in close quarters with people that you are sharing life and death experiences with, it's beyond the realm of possibility that no homosexual relationships would develop. It just seems beyond the pale. And, and like I said, there are, there are some scholars who argue that it was not accepted or it was still clandestine. Other scholars think that there was more openness about it. And I think it really depends on how you read a pirate ship. And so uh, by, by parallel example, I'll say this. In the ancient Greek and Roman world, especially in the ancient Roman world, it was not uncommon for soldiers in the field to develop homosexual relationships And that was encouraged because you'll fight harder for someone you love. And so they weren't meant to be merely sort of pleasurable physical relationships. They were meant to be sort of deeper connections. And so when I think about the utopian impulse and what that looks like, I don't focus so much on same sex, you know, homosexual and heterosexual, or I think of it more as sort of a a realm of intimate possibilities And so I think on a pirate ship, you're going to have groups of individuals who are fiercely committed to each other because they've served together for a long time. They've been through harrowing experiences. They understand each other. They trust one another. And you have all the hallmarks of a relationship. 
to assume that that wouldn't on some level become physical in my mind, you can't reconcile that with, with logic, right? It's just going to happen to think that these individuals were perhaps bisexual in a lot of ways, I think does a disservice both to pirates and bisexuals. I think that pirates had a, a fluid sexuality that moved between ethnicities and races and classes and genders. Pirates are very flamboyant, you know, and a lot of the depictions we have of, of pirates that, you know, there's a lot of theatricality. And I think that even, even someone like Blackbeard, you know, he's, he's got the cannon wicks in his beard for the smoke and he's this fearsome guy. And I think that when you're in this, this sort of realm of the imaginary, anything is possible. And so I feel like even though there's probably hard and fast examples of some, some individual being anti-homosexual, there's just as many examples of individuals shrugging it off, right? As long as it doesn't interfere with your work, we don't care. I think the utopian impulse embraces this fluidity, which acknowledges each individual's right to explore and experiment their own boundaries in the context of relationships that are supportive and trusting and built on shared experiences in such a way that it wouldn't matter. I find it hard to believe that if I'm a really good pirate, my crew is going to be like, we don't want you on our ship anymore because you've got weird proclivities, right? <laughs> like, I feel like they wouldn't care. I love this so much because, of course, pirates were super campy and flamboyant. Boundaries you could cross as a pirate with having a life partner at sea may have even drawn people to piracy. So people who wanted to escape the oppressive societal norms, me too, and live amongst other people <laughs> who wanted to escape these norms as well. And actually, there was a really cool episode of Nancy where they talked about a group of gay people in Australia who tried to start their own country on an island. So I just feel like the sea has been a place where the gays go to escape societal norms. Anyway, here's Clint with more on that. They're rebels, and they come from such disparate cultures where things that are common in some places and uncommon in others, when they come together, I, I think in that sort of back and forth between how you do things and how I do things, it's not about abolishing you know, one person's way of life. It's about finding ways to, to accept it and make room for it. And so some people obviously came from cultures where homosexuality would not have been a problem at all. L lots of, of indigenous people, pirates lots of lots of pirates from indigenous populations wouldn't have found homosexuality problematic at all and so you have to believe on a pirate ship when they're talking about homosexuality there's going to be a large contingent of people looking around like what the hell's the issue like what is wrong with you weird european types you know and and so i i think there's i think there's something to be said for pirate communities that is much more accepting than not only we give them credit for, but we even are today. And so I, on that score, I think we'd all do better if we were more pirate-like. So there are some things we should learn from pirates, but maybe there are other things we shouldn't take from pirates. I'm just going to throw that out there as a, a wild belief. Like what? 
like, <laughs> like murder and rape and all of those great things. Probably yeah, yeah, not yeah. taking on those lessons. But I mean, Clint loves to talk about pirates in a utopic way, right? That's like it's his lovely. whole thing. But I do <laughs> like the idea of, I mean, when we look at so many cultures in history, homophobia didn't necessarily exist, right? Like people just accepted that, of course, like same-sex attracted people existed and wanted to be with each other. Yeah, fucking colonizers <laughs> coming in. And yeah, I would love it if we could <laughs> have <laughs> less homophobia. That's all that's pretty nice. We also spoke to Christopher John Farley, aka CJ, an author who wrote an article called Reclaiming Jamaica's Gay Past about how the pirate histories of the Caribbean challenge stereotypes of Jamaica. Jamaica for many years had a reputation of being a very homophobic place. And there is very deep-rooted homophobia in the Caribbean. I grew up hearing some of it. You know, people that wanted to um, identify as something other than their assigned gender at birth being ridiculed or even assaulted. People who are lesbian or gay or transgender just having terrible time of it growing up. I worked with Stacey Ann Chin at Audible and, and did a, a book with her called Motherstruck. And Stacey Ann Chin is a terrific lesbian. Jamaican poet. And in that book, Mother Truck, she told the story of trying to be a single mom in Brooklyn through in vitro fertilization and how difficult that was as a 30-something lesbian woman. And also, as she talks about the experiences of assault she faced in Jamaica because of intolerance on the island. All that is true. One thing I wanted to point out in the article is that there are notes of hope. There are elements of Jamaican culture that speak to a different path. One thing I find interesting is that you know, Bob Marley, for example, despite some of the homophobia in Jamaican culture, Bob Marley never wrote a song that somehow ridiculed gays or lesbians, um, which I always found very striking, the absence of that from the very many songs that he wrote. Um, and also the, the fact that there's a legacy of great Jamaican poets who are gay and lesbian, who produce great work that speaks to um, LGBTQ plus life on the island and the fight for for identity. So I wanted to shine a light on that aspect of Jamaican culture in contrast to um, the way it's often portrayed. I love that CJ can have hope. It's amazing that anybody can have hope right now. It is (laughs) amazing that anyone can have hope, that there is hope for more LGBTQ artists and experiences to shape the culture moving forward in Jamaica and plenty of other places to make it less homophobic and like make it more like the history of pirates in Jamaica, which CJ talked about as well. Yeah, he even wrote a whole novel about the cross-dressing pirate women Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed, which we'll hear about more in future episodes. One thing that allows people to make assumptions about Jamaica is when you don't know the history of the island, and you don't know the culture of the island. And when you do that, you can make assumptions about what the island is really about. And I think that, um, and you always hear this from people when they, they find out about some culture here they didn't know about and go like, oh, if I don't know that when I was a kid, maybe you know, I would have had this hero to sort of live up to. And I feel the same thing is true of Mary Reed and Anne Bonnie, that a lot of people don't know about their story, they don't know the trails they blazed. They don't know about the, the fights that they waged. And had they known that, maybe they would have had a different take on what you know, cross-dressing is about 
or what the island of Jamaica is about and what the history of piracy is about. So that's why I thought it was important to sort of tell that story. It's personal because, um, you know, I was born in Jamaica. I have written a number of books that deal with Jamaican life. You know, Game World, which is a fantasy adventure set in Jamaica. Um, Before the Legend, The Rise of Bob Marley, which is a, um, a biography of the great Jamaican singer. And of course, you know, Kingston by Starlight. So um, again and again, I sort of returned to the well of sort of writing about aspects of Jamaican culture. And so, you know, I want to make sure I capture what goes on the island on the islands in a very holistic way and not sort of capture a very narrow slice of it because there are always breakthroughs. I mean, um, it's funny that in America, we still haven't been able to sort of elect a female head of state. And Jamaica has had a female prime minister. So um, despite its reputation of being very sexist, which in many aspects it really is, but there still has have been these breakthroughs. And those are the kind of things I want to celebrate in the stuff that I write. And I want to again point out that, um, yes, Jamaica does have a really strong and established record of, of homophobia. Many people have felt it. People who have grown, grown up on the island have talked about it. And we don't want to um, overshadow that because, you know, the, the people's experience has been very negative when you're from that community and you're growing up on the island. But that said, the great thing is how much great and thrilling literature and poetry has come from the island that speaks to the LGBTQ plus experience. You know, again, people like, you know, Claude McKay, the great Jamaican poet um, who wrote, the, you know, wrote that poem, you know, If We Must Die. Let not be like, you know, he's just a, just a great poet. You know, people like Nicole Dennis-Ben, who wrote the book, uh, Here Comes the Sun, he got incredible acclaim in, in, in recent years. And so uh, I think when people think about the island, I hope they check out some of these other books and aspects of Jamaica. So um, just to let them know that the island has crossed assigned lines of sort of gender and class and sex before. People continue to do that. There's a whole rich legacy and bank of culture from Jamaica that does those things that's worth, worth checking out. All in all, our conversations with these pirate historians revealed that, just like in season one, historical erasure is a huge problem. Here's Rebecca again, and then CJ. There is a huge queer erasure in history. And, you know, why? Many reasons, politically, you know, it could just be that just a lot of straight washing, you know, perhaps, you know, straight people or non-LGBT people who just, it doesn't even quite dawn on them that maybe there could have been a homosexual relationship or maybe it is deliberate erasure. You know, I hear all the jokes of like these two, of two women writing love letters to each other, living together, never having children, but they're just friends, right? And the same thing, you know, there's examples of men doing that writing lovely letters. In fact, even for instance, I think just because it's so popular, David McCullough, when he wrote Hamilton's biography, there was examples of kind of loving language between Hamilton and John Lawrence. But again, you can't prove, was that actual loving language or is that just simply intimate language between friends, which was the type of language used back then in letters and writings? So again, it's kind of how we interpret. But no, I agree. There is a lot of LGBT eraser in history. At the time, and we're talking about the um... 18th century here, you know, there really weren't good places for women. You know, in many places, women couldn't vote, they couldn't hold higher office, they couldn't inherit land, they couldn't own land. They're very much the property of their fathers and brothers and male relatives. The same thing with 
many people of color, particularly black people. You know, we were for sale, couldn't own things, couldn't vote, were bought and sold like goods, like animals. And the one place where black people and women could find some measure of freedom was on the high seas, was on these pirate ships, because when they adapted or brought out these alternate personalities, the people they really were to begin with, finally they were able to own things. They were able to steal things. They were able to live the lives they always saw themselves living. So I always found it profoundly ironic and really beautiful in a true way that the um, one way people could live an honest life in this time period was by being a criminal. And so when I began to picture it in that way, it all became very clear to me. And I still think to a certain extent, that's true today in that um, you know, all these you know, crazy bathroom laws being passed and, and voter suppression acts, in order to live an authentic life, in order to be the person you want to be, you often have to defy the rules and the laws that society is setting down for you. Um, that's what we're doing today when we're out there marching in the streets for Black Lives Matter, or we're marching out in the streets for the right for people to adopt kids or to marry. And that's what these pirates were doing back in their time. They were really just fighting for, for the right to be themselves. Wow. I just love that this theme keeps coming up again and again. It's my favorite. Surprise, surprise. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. We're trying to bring a little bit less queer erasure to our lives. So we're going to bring all this stuff to light. And I appreciate Rebecca and CJ talking about it. Yeah, CJ does like to remind us that history all comes down to who controls the narrative, which I think we've extensively covered and will probably be a theme in this season too. Male and white, that shouldn't be the default setting. We could go into it as a blank slate and then use the evidence to figure out, okay, who was this person really? And it's funny, just the other day I was watching um, a couple of portrayals of my family's other Van Gogh exhibit, the interactive one that came to, um, to New York City. And so my, my daughter and I sort of watched some excerpts from various movies about Van Gogh, you know, Lust for Life, and the, the new one with William Defoe at Eternity's Gate, and Vincent and Theo. And one thing we noted is how wildly different all the interpretations of Van Gogh were. It all depends on people's point of view, on the actors, whether and who's directing it. The same is true of almost every historical figure. So we hear these things about the historical figures, we assume them to be straight or male or white. We poke into it and go like, oh, that's maybe not the case. Maybe we need to more, more about that. A couple of years back, I edited a special issue on Thomas Jefferson for Time magazine. And at the time, the assumption was, amongst many people, this is about a number of years ago, a lot of the mainstream assumption was that Thomas Jefferson couldn't have cheated on his family and had kids out of wedlock because that's not the kind of person he was. And then, thanks to DNA testing, people began to prove, yes, in fact, he almost certainly did have kids out of wedlock and he did um, rape his slaves regularly. It's who's telling the story, what historians are looking into, what evidence are they assuming to be true. And um, I try to go into history with, when I look at any historical figure, I go into with those assumptions. I mean, the same is true of, of ancient Egypt. There's so many movies that are made, and the Egyptians, people who are playing the Egyptians, you know, look like they're from London 
white Londoners, and they don't look like the Egyptians we see today, or the Egyptians that lived in uh, what we call ancient Egypt, who historians say were even a darker shade. Again, it's who's telling the story. And that's not just true of race, it's true of gender. So I hope that, you know, throughout this podcast, you do go in there, guns blazing, throwing aside historical assumptions and saying, let's see who that person really was. Let's see who they really loved. Let's not just go by what history has already put down as the assumptions of what they're about. There is no better way to end this episode than to reiterate what CJ said. So... With that, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter. Queer is identity, but also politics. And to me, queer also uh, has a sort of latent leftist impulse, a sort of drive towards caring for one's community and for one's partners in a specific way. And, And I think that there's some really complicated things that happen when we say, like, this man is raping another man. Is that queer? And I think you have a lot of different answers to that question, depending on who you ask. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our third episode will be released on September 30th. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweetbitter. Thank you to our new Patreon supporters this week, Brittany and Holly. We're so grateful for your support. You can now also subscribe for our bonus episodes using Apple's subscriber feature. So far, we've covered Peter Pan and the Goonies. Upcoming episodes include The Princess Bride, Muppets Treasure Island, and the romp that is Cutthroat Island. (laughs) I cannot wait. (laughs) Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Snore, and Lisa Charlotte. Our production assistant is Thea Smith, and our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Thank you to our guests this week, Jamie Goodall, Clint Jones, Rebecca Simon, and Christopher John Farley. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. And now we have an amazing pirate shanty by our favorite pirate expert, Elise. It is called the Jolly Roger, which just, you're in for a treat. (laughs) Ahoy. Ahoy, the Jolly Roger flies high. Give us your loot or strap on your boots and prepare yourself to die. Acquiesce or we'll sink your ship, you'll never dock at port. Mind the ticking clock on our flag, your time is running short. Ahoy, ahoy, the Jolly Roger flies high. Give us your loot or strap on your boots and prepare yourself to die. Our cannons all are ready, our knives are very sharp. If you don't give us your stuff, we'll stab you in the heart. Ahoy, ahoy, the Jolly Roger flies high. Give us your loot or strap on your boots and prepare yourself to die. Meet all of our demands or we'll break all of your bones. Hand the goods over now or it's time to meet Davy Jones. Ahoy, 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 the Jolly Roger flies high. Give us your loot or strap on your boots and prepare yourself to die.